Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, my name is Daniel Rosenthal. It's a great pleasure to welcome you to the Dorfman Theatre for this afternoon's platform, commemorating the 50th anniversary of the end of state censorship of stage drama in this country, with the passing in September 1968 of the Theatres Act. I'm very lucky to be joined by Catherine Johnson, uh, who was uh, for 35 years a curator at the British Library, and until her retirement last year, last year was curator of theatre archives and manuscripts, which made her responsible for the extraordinary collection of the Lord Chamberlain's plays and related scripts and documents. We're going to hear a little bit about that shortly. Next to Catherine, Steve Nicholson, who is chair of 20th Century and Contemporary Theatre at the University of Sheffield. And Steve's four-volume history on the censorship of British drama culminated in his winning the Theatre Book Prize for 2015 for the concluding volume. On my right, we have the actors, Jane McFarlane, Jeremy Bennett, and Dominic Tiefenthaler. And they are here to help with our what-if premise. The premise being, what if the stage censorship for powers were still in force for the national and had been from 1968 until the present. How would plays be censored? I thought it'd be useful if, Steve, you could talk a little bit for us about the powers that were in force in the 60s and what theatres had to do. The veteran producer Michael Codron said recently, it's almost impossible to imagine now the hoops that we all had to jump through to get a play put on. Steve. Okay, so thank you, uh, Daniel. So what we're talking about is a system that was introduced uh, by the Prime Minister Walpole in 1737, and it lasted 231 years. And he introduced it specifically because he was fed up with his government being satirised and mocked from the stage. So the, the origins are specifically political, although when you look at it in the 20th century, a lot of it is to do, a lot of the censorship is to do with swearing and language and, and morality, but the origins are, are specifically political. So what the, the law required was that any new play, and by that was meant anything written after 1737, that was going to be publicly performed, whether professionally or by amateurs, by students, anybody at all, a copy of that play had to be sent to the Lord Chamberlain, uh, who had staff working for him. It wasn't, uh, the Lord Chamberlain didn't do the actual reading of the plays, uh, although it was his responsibility to license. A script had to be sent to him in advance, which he could uh, approve uh, or not approve. Important to say that relatively few plays are completely banned. And the Lord Chamberlain always saw himself not as the censor of plays, but as the licensor of plays. But what was quite common was that significant changes uh, were made to, to the script of a play. That might be individual words, it might be speeches, uh, it might be characters, uh, it could be stage business, it could on occasions be, uh, be lighting effects. So it's a pre-censorship before the play is performed. The Lord Chamberlain had absolute power. Uh, there was no appeal against him. He was the head servant of the royal household. You couldn't appeal through Parliament if your, your play was, uh, was censored. Um, he could make any changes he wanted to. He was not obliged to justify them and say it's because of this. He often did. He often did discuss it with people. 
uh, with the writer or the manager, but, but he wasn't obliged to, and there were no um, absolute rules that he, that he had to follow. So what would happen was the, uh, the reader of his plays, the Lord Chimney's reader, would write a synopsis of each play, would draw attention to anything that he thought was, was doubtful, uh, and then it would be sent a bit further up the ladder to the controller of the Lord Chamberlain's office and possibly to the Lord Chamberlain himself for them to, to make the, uh, the final decisions on what to allow and what not to allow. Um, I was just going to give a few uh, examples of, uh, because his authority lasted until 1968, of where in its very early days the National Theatre came up against uh, the Lord Chamberlain. There were some ways around the Lord Chamberlain's authority. One was if you called your theatre a private club. National Theatre never did that, but that's how the Royal Court sometimes in the 60s started to get round things by saying we're a private club and then the Lord Chamberlain spied on it and made sure it was really operating club rules. The Royal Shakespeare Company threatened to do that. Um, and by the mid-1960s, the Lord Chamberlain's authority um, is, is beginning to be undermined by theatres turning themselves into clubs or threatening to do so. And also, he was just, he'd become very worried by the mid-1960s that sooner or later, theatre was just going to defy him and, and go ahead anyway. And some did talk about that. And then it would be up to the direct for public prosecutions uh, whether they wanted to, to, to bring something against, uh, against the theatre. Um, also worth saying perhaps that the, the, the system was a bit leaky, as it were, in that he had no way usually of checking up on whether theatres really did follow uh, his requirements. Occasionally one of his staff went to see something or he sent the police to see something or he'd get a letter from somebody complaining, but there was no absolute system of checking whether actors were really keeping to the rules. So just a, a few quick examples from, from, the, from the 60s that show how the system was operating in relation to the National Theatre. So a play called Dingo uh, by Charles Wood, described by the Lord Chamberlain as a perfectly dreadful play, which will undermine in every, in every way the nation's will to resist. It was an anti-war play set during the Second World War, a very shocking play, had a character burning to death in a tank uh, on stage. A terrible play with a sinister theme. They wrote to, uh, to, the, to the National Theatre and said, Lord Chamberlain asked me to say he has found some difficulty over this play and would welcome an informal talk with Sir Laurence Olivier. They have an informal talk. Lord Chamberlain says, I, I don't want to have an open row with the National Theatre because I don't want to, to get into the press. The play disappears, was never staged uh, by the National Theatre. A play by, by uh, the German writer called Spring, um, Frank Riedekind called Spring Awakening, which had been banned many times. Uh, National Theatre was interested in producing it. They wrote to the Lord Chamberlain saying they would like to present this beautiful and delicate play, but only if they could do it uncut. Lord Chamberlain commented, no, German expressionism is dead. <laughs> and it never was beautiful and delicate. Is homosexuality ever charming and innocent except to homosexuals? <laughs> National did perform that play, but not until 1974. A play by the Spanish writer Arabel called The Architect and the Emperor of uh, Assyria. Um, 
they wrote to, uh, to Laurence Olivier when, when they read it saying, look, there are two things we, we can do. Either we can refuse this play completely or I can send you a long list of cuts. Olivier said, send me the list of cuts. They sent him 40 cuts they wanted. Lord Chamberlain uh, was, was successful in that the theatre never went ahead with it. They had this phrase in the Lord Chamberlain's office, death by a thousand cuts. In other words, if you made enough cuts, you didn't have to ban the play, but the theatre would probably decide not to do it. A play called Soldiers, some of you might, might know of, which, which suggested that um, uh, Sir Winston Churchill uh, was complicit uh, in the killing of the, um, of the Polish Prime Minister during the Second World War. Again, private discussions about it. Cobbold and Viscount Chandos, who of course had a very senior position at the National Theatre, that gets dropped. And then lastly, as, as we're on the set here for um, Peter Brook, uh, his latest production, I thought I'd just mention, although this one wasn't actually banned, his version of Oedipus in March 1968. Now, by March 1968, Lord Chamberlain knows he's on the way out. Um, but this is an interesting one, because two days before it's due to be performed, Laurence Olivier, so Laurence Olivier phones the Lord Chamberlain and says that Peter Brook is going to introduce a bacchanalian orgy at the end. Um, and Olivier says he doesn't want that to happen. He wants the backing of the Lord Chamberlain to stop it. I think, though I have no evidence, that Olivier and Brooke may well have been actually planning and in league of it. So he phones back again and says, OK, I've told Peter Brooke he can't do that at the end. Member of staff from Lord Chamberlain's office goes to see it on the first night and all that happens at, at the, the final moments of the play is this giant golden penis uh, is displayed on stage. End of play. Two days later, somebody writes to the Sunday newspaper and says, do you know that they are now not performing the same version that the Lord Chamberlain saw? They're now doing a lot of dancing and jiving and caressing of this golden penis uh, at the end of the performance. So somebody else from the Lord Chamberlain's office goes to see it um, and writes, I give it as my opinion that there is nothing in the piece that requires the introduction of a golden penis. <laughs> and very lastly, just as a postscript, because I think it's such an interesting one, again, it doesn't close a play down. April 1968, memorandum in the Lord Chamberlain's office. I see from yesterday's times that the National Theatre proposed to stage Edward II and interpret the stage direction they embrace by having two male actors kiss each other. If this is report is true, we shall have our first example of two actors making homosexual love in public, a summit of achievement that will crown their efforts to popularise the profession's hobby. Thank you very much, Steve. So, Catherine, what is in the collection at the BL and how is it used? Well, the collection at the BL, it's, it's enormous. It's certainly by far the biggest collection in, uh, of manuscripts at the British Library and it's one of the biggest collection across the whole of the National Archives and so on. Um, the four main sections, I'll race through this, uh, so we can get on to the really interesting stuff. There's the Lord Chamberlain's plays themselves. Um, the Lord Chamberlain froze onto them, refused to give them back, although they did allow people to send a professional copyist, should you have been daft enough to send your only copy, which happened two or three times a year in, in, after, the, after the Second World War. Those run from in, 
our collection in London from 1823 to 1968. Uh, for the 20th century, there's something more than 56,000 individual scripts. So that's anything from a one-page squib from a, a, a review sketch to a five-volume tragedy. Uh, there's probably about 25 to 30,000 plays surviving from the 19th century, so it's a huge collection. Then there's the what came to us as the Lord Chamberlain's Plays Correspondence. From 1913, the Lord Chamberlain's Office kept a file for every play. Sometimes it's simply a fold of paper um, with the examiner's report on the front and the documents concerning it, so a letter presenting it, the letter back that says the Lord Chamberlain encloses the licence or he will enclose the licence once you have promised to take all the, you know, the gods and bloodies out of it and so on. It's the correspondence. That's had a huge amount of use. Um, on the other hand, a bell rings in, our, in, in the manuscripts office if someone has to look at the, uh, the correspondence file for look back in anger. It's probably been out and it's got a bit curly. So if you get refused, don't take it amiss. We will find surrogates for you. Um, there's the theatre files that run for the whole of the 20th century. The Lord Chamberlain also was responsible for actual theatre buildings in roughly what corresponds to the Greater London area. They shed light in unexpected areas. There's not only general files that refer to um, how they operated, the practicalities of operating censorship, of posters, of um, outside influences of, of various pressure groups in there. You also get to find out about practical things like gas supply and uh, lights. So for a lot of theatre files, there's perpetual applications to use a naked light on stage or things like that. So you find out what, you know, a certain degree about what was done in various productions. Also quick change um, uh, facilities just off stage. The reason behind that was there were far less fires in London theatres than there were almost anywhere else in the Western world. And that was because of the Lord Chamberlain's regulations, which were stricter than anywhere else. Uh, as well as the theatre files, the other main sections, the Lord Chamberlain's Office day books. They run from the 1920s. Um, they are a good fallback if you're looking for a play and you can't find it in the card indexes or in any reference books. It will almost certainly be in there somewhere. And the reason for that is not that um, they wanted to keep records for theatrical history. They actually paid the examiner the fees, the reading fees, as their income as their honorarium and all the way through from the second theatres act in 1843 it was a guinea that's uh, one pound and for a one act play and two guineas for anything longer than that there are lots of people who try to get around it saying it's a one act play but it has 27 scenes <laughs> um, so please find and close the check for a beginning and they will write back and say send the check back and say no it's not in practical terms it's more than one act and they needed to know which examiner had looked at which play because he would get that degree of income. Um, and the index cards. If you go and look at the Lord Chamberlain, we've, uh, the library has now, part of the indexes have been digitised, but it's a, little bit, it's a little bit difficult. There is a magnificent card index, quite a lot of which is the one that uh, started out in the Lord Chamberlain's office itself. If you want to look at the indexed correspondence, those cards were written out by the Lord Chamberlain and his staff. 
and you sometimes get bonus remarks on the back. So also make sure to have a look at the back if you go and look at that material. Very good, thank you. So we thought we'd start with a play that was staged by the National Theatre Company at the Old Vic just a year after the end of censorship. And it's Michael Blakemore's production of Peter Nichols' The National Health. It's worth mentioning that Peter Nichols and Michael Blakemore had had a really big run-in with the Lord Chamberlain on their previous collaboration, A Day in the Death of Joe Egg. They had both had to go to the office and plead for them to be allowed to get around the objections that the Lord Chamberlain had had to a, a young child being on stage when her parents are talking about going to bed together. So they had previous, as it were, with the Lord Chamberlain and there was certainly therefore for them a sense of liberation at being able to do the national health without censorship. So it's the portrait of the patients and staff in an NHS hospital. We see and hear patients groaning and snoring and farting and we see a nurse carrying a flask full of urine. And the scene that we're going to look at is Act 1, Scene 3. We have Barnet, the hospital porter, and somewhat than also the narrator with asides, vaudevillian asides, to the audience of the play, played by Dominic, and also with Nurse Sweet, played by Jane. And they have an interaction with one patient, who is Reese, played by Jeremy, who is an 82-year-old retired doctor who has had a stroke and is somewhat deaf. Come along, ladies. Come along. Knickers on. Stand by your bed. Those who can't sit and stand, they just lie to attention. No, it's wicked to laugh. I, t I told this uh, old man in the next ward, I said to him, Dad, you better watch your step. He said, why? I said, they have a case of syphilis coming in. He said, well, it'll make a change from the LucasAid. <laughs> I didn't hear that <laughs> remark. Oops. Sorry, nurse, I never saw you. Come on. Is that a lovely drink, Mr. Flag? Oh, doctor, come on now. Fingers off. Give it a rest. You'll be going blind. It's a shocking sight. A man being fed like a baby through a spout. I can drink my tea and eat my dinner. Of course you can. Mr. Barnett, be a good fellow. What? Uh, tell them to get a move on with my shoes and socks. Where can I go without them? Well, they have to wait a little. What for? For your wife to come in. But she's been in. No. Hasn't she? We haven't had dinner a long time, have we? Haven't we? What do you say to a spot of fresh air on the veranda? Maybe by then she'll be in. There's a clever boy. And when she comes, no funny business. Oh, what do you mean? Well, pulling her into your bed? Well, no, that's not a good thing to do in front of all the visitors. Oh, don't make him laugh too much. He hasn't got a bottle. Oh, I don't want a bottle. I'm not a baby. No, you're a dirty old man. So, the question for, for Steve and Catherine, what in that extract would most have exercised the Lord Chamberlain's examiners. We have innuendo, we have bodily functions. What would have been the problem? I think bod bodily functions. Um, he had, they, they had an unhealthy obsession with farts um, to the extent that in the 1930s they would actually stop um, musical comedians in reviews from, from, they would put a bracket stage direction in, they'd put Raz. R-A-Z, standing for, ras for raspberry, you know, I won't do one because my 
false teeth would probably fly across the room, but they would say ras, and they'd say, no, you can't do that because raspberry is short for raspberry tart equals fart, and you cannot, we cannot have farts. <laughs> so right up to the, the Second World War and beyond, they were, you couldn't, theoretically, I mean, they happened, but if you put them in the script, they would go. So he would, he would have been, or the examiners would have been bewildered by that people finding it funny and going on about it. That's yeah, I, I mean, yes, it goes into the, the 60s. There's, there's a, a French play, I just can't, it's called Victor, I think, that the RSC do in 1965. And um, there's a character, they do it in English, obviously, there's a character in it, uh, a woman who in one scene farts all the way through. She's supposed to have an illness that makes her fart and lots of people comment on it. And the Lord Chamberlain wouldn't allow it. Uh, and they substituted... Uh, every time she was supposed to fart, they, the theatre substituted uh, the opening chords of Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. Um, <laughs> and um, s staff in the, s the Lord Chamberlain staff say, this is ridiculous because now it sounds as though she's allergic to Beethoven's Fifth, Fifth Symphony. And um, So you're, you're right, they certainly wouldn't, wouldn't have allowed that. I, so I think they would have been worried, even by a remark like, knickers on. Mm. They would have wanted to know, are there really going to be people on stage who don't have knickers on? Can yeah. you reassure us? And, and clearly, it, yeah. it's just a throwaway remark there, but you, you don't know that for certainty. So they would yeah. have checked on that. And it wouldn't matter if you couldn't see the fact that they had no knickers on. Yeah. The fact that you, the audience, might think they had no knickers on was, was the important thing. Yeah, that, that, that's right. When, when they... Um, staging of uh, Lady Chatterley's Lover in uh, 1961... Um, which, which is okay because they take out any uh, sexual words from it. But the theatre decided that um, in order to, to make it a bit more provocative, they wanted to have uh, the two characters, uh, Connie and Mellows, naked in the bed. They wouldn't be seen, but they told the press the two performers were going to be naked. Uh, and the Lord Chamberlain would not allow that, even though they weren't going to be seen. He said we must not have an audience that think people are naked in a bed. That would be too mm. provocative. He'd also, I mean, he'd have been very worried about this just being in bad taste, wouldn't he? Oh, because yes, yes. Because he... Black comedy was something he... Um, virtually none of the, even the younger examiners in the 60s, it was something that they found very difficult to, to translate in the terms that, you know, that they'd grown up with. Yeah, and he'd have, essentially they wanted to see things in, in realistic terms. So they'd have been saying, people don't talk like this, really. Well, this is a ridiculous mm. play. Mm. But, and clearly, it's not meant to be an accurate representation of how people talk. But that, yeah. that always presented problems for the, for the Lord Chamberlain. And they yeah. would have seen it as, you know, in, insulting to the elderly and the sick and so on. So mm. And perhaps also the medical profession, Absolutely. which was, oh, yes. which yeah, was yeah. an objection yes. that Olivier himself had. Mm. So the, the considerations that we've talked about there about nudity lead us naturally on to the next play we're going to look at, which is Equus in 1973 by Peter Schaffer, directed by John Dexter at the Old Vic. And it focuses on Alan Strang, the teenage stable boy who has blinded six horses and the psychiatrist, Martin Dysart, who tries to find out why Alan did what he did, how he became obsessed with one particular horse at the stables, Nugget, and obsessed with the idea of the equus horse god. The horses were represented at the Old Vic by actors dressed all in black, wearing 
these skeletal wire, horsehead masks and hooves. We're going to look at the penultimate scene of the play when we've just watched Alan have a disastrous sexual encounter with a stable girl, Jill, which precipitates the act of violence. Dominic will play Alan, Jeremy will play Dysart, and Jane will read the all-important stage directions. Alan stands alone and naked, a faint humming and drumming. The boy looks about him in growing terror. What? He, he was there, through the door, but, but he was, the door was shut, but he was there. I could hear him, he, he, he was laughing. Laughing? Mocking, mocking. Standing downstage, he stares up towards the tunnel. A great silence weighs on the square. Friend, Equus the kind, the merciful, forgive me, it wasn't me, it wasn't really me, me, forgive me, take me back, please, please. He kneels on the downstage lip of the square, still facing the door, huddling will, in fear. I will, I will never do it again, I swear, I swear, please. And he, what does he say? Mine. You are mine. I am yours and you are mine. And then I see his eyes, they're, they're rolling. Nugget begins to advance slowly with relentless hooves down the central tunnel. I see you, I see you, always, everywhere, forever. Kiss anyone and I will see. Yes. Lie with anyone and I will see. Yes. And you will fail, forever and ever you will fail. You will see me and you will fail. The boy turns round, hugging himself in pain. From the sides, two more horses converge with Nugget on the rails. Their hooves stamp angrily. The equus noise is heard more terribly. The Lord thy God is a jealous God. He sees you. He sees you forever and ever. Alan, he sees you. He sees you. Uh, eyes, white eyes, never closed. Coming, coming, eyes like flames. God seest. God seest. No! No more. No more, Equus. He gets up. He goes to the bench. He takes up the invisible pick. He moves slowly upstage towards Nugget concealing the weapon behind his naked back in the growing darkness. He stretches out his hand and fondles Nugget's mask. Equus, noble Equus, faithful and true, God slave, thou, God, 
seest nothing. He stabs out Nugget's eyes. The horse stamps in agony. A great screaming begins to fill the theatre, growing ever louder. Alan dashes at the other two horses and blinds them too, stabbing over the rails. Their metal hooves join in the stamping. Three more horses appear, not naturalistic animals like the first three, but dreadful creatures out of nightmare. Their eyes flare, their nostrils flare, their mouths flare. They invade the square. As they trample at him, the boy leaps desperately at them, slashing at their heads with arms upraised. The screams increase. The whole place is filled with cannoning, blinded horses, and the boy avoiding their slashing hooves as best he can. Finally, they plunge away out of sight. The noise dies abruptly, and all we hear is Alan yelling in hysteria as he collapses, stabbing at his own eyes find with the me. invisible pick. Find me! Find me! Kill me! Kill me! Thank you all very much. So, Catherine, Steve, Equus, and the Lord Chamberlain. The, there's several things to say about it. One, I mean, just to almost defend the Lord Chamberlain, I, I suppose, for a minute. I mean, clearly that is intended to be a very disturbing scene, even though or because it's not naturalistic and you have human actors. You know, I'm sure that is intended to be a disturbing scene. One of the things that the Lord Chamberlain is, uh, sees as his duty is to protect audiences from being shocked and disturbed. And also, he says, there is nothing that restricts the age of people coming into a theatre, unlike cinema, where there are licences for different ages. So he did used to say, you know, I have to assume that a 10-year-old might come in, you know, a parent might bring a 10-year-old. Um, so he would have had that as a, a sort of defence for saying that is, that is too shocking, too horrible uh, to show. Um, he also, he, he would have been disturbed, Lord Chamberlain would have been disturbed just by the sort of the sexual implications of a, of a relationship between uh, a boy and horses, although we don't see that uh, explicitly. It's certainly hinted at, he might have questioned is this a metaphor? Is, is it about homosexuality? Or, or is it actually bestiality? There, <coughs> excuse me, there is a play by Bamber Gascoigne. Those of you who remember know Bamber Gascoigne from mid-1960s. Bamber Gascoigne wrote a play set in the future in which it has become standard practice for, for young people to have a sexual relationship with, with an animal. They all have their own animals and it probably is a sort of metaphor, but that was absolutely banned. It didn't show, I think I'm right in saying it didn't show any physical uh, stuff on stage at all, but, but the idea of sex between uh, a, a person and an animal couldn't, couldn't be suggested. I think he would also have said, why does that action have to be on stage? Mm. You know, the, 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 you know, you can keep the story, you can keep the idea, maybe we'll change a few lines, but surely that action could happen off stage. Yeah. He, he would have, I think he would have seen the cruelty, even though it's highly stylized, as being, he wouldn't have seen the power behind it. All he would have seen was <coughs> somebody being repellently 
cruel, doing a, an act of repellent cruelty to, to animals. I, I was doing my O-levels at the time in Northern England, and I can remember the huge fuss there was in the papers about, about the nudity and about the, the cruelty, although it's stylized. Um, and I can remember my father picking up the paper, it was probably something like the Daily Express, and saying to me, why would anyone want to go and see this at a theatre? And I think one of the things that the Lord Chamberlain, and it's the sort of thing that in when the Lord Chamberlain's writ was still running, people would have written to him if it had passed and said, why, why do you have this? There would be people who said, why, why do you have to have that cruelty if you have to have a play about somebody who is desperately disturbed in, in various ways? Why does it have to be cruelty to another sentient mm. being. Mm. The fact that it's all stylized wouldn't have come into it. And, and some of the early reviews talk about, on the press night, that scene reducing several members of the audience to noisy hysteria. So the stylization absolutely didn't minimize, it might even somehow have heightened that, that yes. effect. So we move on from the Old Vic to the first of our, our plays for today staged in this building. We're in 1992 in this theater for Tony Kushner's Angels in America Part One, Millennium Approaches, directed by Declan Donnellan here. It's New York around 1985. The Republican lawyer and fixer Roy Cohn is played by Jeremy. His doctor, Henry, is played by Dominic. And Cohn is very sick and he has gone to see Henry and try and find out what is wrong with him. No, say it. I mean it. Say, Roy Cohn, you're a homosexual. And I will proceed systematically to destroy your reputation and your practice and your career in New York State, Henry, which you know I can do. Roy, you've been seeing me since 1958. Apart from the, the facelifts, I have treated you for everything, from syphilis from a to whore from in Dallas. syphilis to venereal warts in your rectum, which you might have gotten from a whore in Dallas, but it wasn't a female one. So say it. Roy Cohn. You have had sex with men. Many, many times, Roy. And one of them, or any number of them, have made you very sick. You have AIDS. AIDS. Your problem, Henry, is that you are hung up on words, on labels. That you believe they mean what they seem to mean. AIDS. Homosexual, gay, lesbian. You think these are names that tell you who someone sleeps with, but they don't tell you that. No. No. Like all labels, they tell you one thing and one thing only. Where does an individual so identified fit in the food chain, in the pecking order? Not ideology or sexual taste, but something much simpler. Clout. Not who I fuck or who fucks me, but who will pick up the phone when I call. Who owes me favors? This is what a label refers to. Now to someone who does not understand this, homosexual is what I am because I have sex with men. But really, this is wrong. Homosexuals are not men who sleep with other men. Homosexuals are men who in 15 years of trying 
cannot pass a pissant anti-discrimination bill through city council. Homosexuals are men who know nobody and whom nobody knows, who have zero class. Does that sound like me, Henry? No. Thank you. Uh, of course, remembering Roy Cohn, sometime advisor to Donald Trump. So, <laughs> the Lord Chamberlain and angels in America. I think he it would have been total incomprehension um, to a lot of it. Um, from about 1958, the Lord Chamberlain at the time, was it, was it still Scarborough? Lord Scarborough? Yeah. Lord Scarborough actually um, formulated a, what was quite, for the day, quite a farcing memorandum. And he said, started something like, I think the time has come where we should be prepared to have homosexuals as characters in plays and to deal with you know, homosexual themes. But what he was really prepared to accept was homosexual characters <coughs> who by and large were comic caricatures. Um, so that there was a, they actually called it the, the interior designer code. So if a character was a hairdresser or an interior designer, they were a homosexual. The one thing they still wouldn't accept was plays that dealt with serious issues about relationships that happened to be homosexual ones. Um, and they saw it as, as really a one-dimensional thing. Um, I think it's not... Uh, it, 30 Years Before was a patriot for me, which caused a tremendous thing, especially the, the drag ball scene. And they argued over that. But what caused that to fail was not so much the fuss over that, was that the theatre that put it on turned themselves into a club. But there was such a clamour for tickets that they somewhat ignored the regulations and they were done for it and the ended up uh, Osborne lost a lot of money because he'd put several thousand pounds into the production that no uh, theatre club could legally get the numbers of people in for a serious play so it's something that I think they would have said you've got a cheek sending this play in it absolutely will not do in mm. any way shape or form mm. yeah I mean it it's not quite true to say that you couldn't ever have a homosexual character in a play. You couldn't put it into words, but there were codes that audiences would recognise and that Lord Chamberlain knew about. So, you know, in, in the 20s and 30s, it's absolutely clear that if you have a male character who writes poetry or plays the piano or has long fingers, that is a way of signalling that, that that character is, is gay, but you couldn't kind of voice it and, and, uh, and talk about it. The, the first play he allows through in, in 58, where, where he says this is a good test case, is actually A Taste of Honey. Sheila Delane is A Taste of Honey. Um, and when I teach that to students now, they say, but we think that character's gay, but it's so underwritten, why isn't it made clearer? Well, the reason it's not made clearer is probably because it wouldn't mm. have been allowed if it had been, been made absolutely mm. uh, explicit. But yes, this, this would have been certainly going much too far. Yes, yes. and I mean, the, the sort of fantasy aspect um, where there's a... Um, that combines two things together. So there's the, the angel with the eight vaginas would have given him heart failure because they just said, why? It's stupid. It's not a good fantasy. It's not erotic or anything. It's just disgusting. And also the last thing in that where there's a recitation of the Hebrew Kaddish and he would have seen that that combination of religious observance and 
sexual explicitness as being absolutely, mm. it will not do. Okay, we're going to move on, still in uh, this theatre, to 1997, Patrick Marber's Closer, which he also directed. The crisscrossing relationships of four people in London, two men and two women. And we're going to look at the last few moments before the interval. Anna, a photographer, has just revealed to her husband, Larry, who is a dermatologist, that she's been having an affair with Dan, a journalist. And it's worth recalling that in that production, the impact of what passes between these two characters, Dominic will be Larry, Jane will be Anna, is immeasurably enhanced by the fact that it is at the end of a split scene. So Larry and Anna's apartment is on this side of the stage and Dan and his partner Alice's apartment is on that side of the stage. Completely separate apartments, but we, the audience, watch the simultaneous breakup of both couples. So when they're talking in this scene about Dan, at the beginning of that extract, he's right there. We can see him, they can't see him. Are you going to live with him? Yes. You stay here if you want. I don't give a fuck about the spoils. You did this the day we met. You let me fucking hang myself for your amusement. Why didn't you tell me the second I walked in that door? Well, I was scared. Because you're a coward, you fucking spoiled bitch. <laughs> Are you dressed because you thought I might hit you? What do you think I am? I've been hit before. Not by me. Is he good fuck? Oh, don't do this. Just answer the fucking question. Is he good? Yes. Better than me? <laughs> Different. Better? Gentler. What does that mean? <laughs> you know what it means. No, tell me. No. I treat you like a whore? Sometimes. Well, why would that be? <sighs> I'm sorry. It, it, it's done. You're oh, no, don't say it. Don't, don't fucking say you're too good for me. I am, but don't fucking say it. You're, look, you're making a mistake of your life. You're leaving me because you think you're not worthy and not for happiness, but, but you are, Anna, you are. Did you take a bath because you had sex with him? So you wouldn't smell of him, so you would feel less guilty. And how do you feel? Guilty. <laughs> Did you ever love me? Yes. Big fucking deal. <laughs> Anna, please, please, don't leave me, please. Did you do it here? No. Why not? Just tell me the truth. Oh, yes, we did it here. Where? Here. On this? We had our first fuck on this. Did you think of me? Hmm? When? When did you do it here? This Answer e the fucking question! This evening. Did you come? Oh, why are you doing this? Because I want to know. Yes, I came. How many times? Twice. How? First he went down on me and then we fucked. That's when you came the second time. Now, who was there? I was on top and then he fucked me from behind. Okay, so that was the second time you came. 
Why is the sex so important? Oh, because I'm a fucking caveman. I want to know. Did you touch yourself while you fucked you? Yes. Okay. Do you wank for him? Yes, sometimes. And he does. We do everything that people who have sex do. You like sucking him off? Yes. You like his cock? I love it. You like him coming on your face? Yes. What does it taste like? It tastes like you, but sweeter. Oh, that's the spirit. <laughs> that's the spirit. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for your honesty. Well, fuck off and die, you fucked up slag. So, Steve and Catherine, Patrick Marber's closer. <laughs> Sorry, I shouldn't have snorted like that. <laughs> Just as a, a, having spent sort of like 25 years on bad language and so on, I find sometimes it's terribly difficult being a sort of a female, um, straight, church-going Anglo-Saxon. I'm, you know, reading this and I'm sort of trying to keep a, you feel as if you need to keep a straight, face and there is something irresistibly funny when you see things in in little bits like that because you, you absolutely zero on and even even in a wonderful performance that's a great thing about having read that you see how it how it goes but there's something sometimes there's something irresistibly funny but in an unpleasant sense about it i mean i think even more they just um where he talks about the lord chamberlain would in, in certainly before the 60s, would discount plays that were ostentatiously about adultery. If he said the whole theme of the play was adultery, it would not do. An instance of adultery, providing it, it happened safely off stage and you only heard about it was fine. But plays for which the whole theme was adultery were being turned down as, as late as the immediate post-war period. Yeah, I mean, I, I, as part of my... Uh, research for writing the, the books, I, I spent weeks going through reading every file in the Lord Chamberlain's office. You know, I'd be in there when the library opened and I'd come out when it closed. And one of the odd things that happens to you is that you, you come out and you start to see the world through the Lord Chamberlain's eyes. You start to see everything that's going on and you read a play and, and you know, I just, I, I mean, I, I don't see how he could have allowed any of that at all, possibly. He, he would have said, I mean, he, when they were really provoked by something, like some of the Bond's plays, they used to say, this author has a diseased mind. And that's what they would certainly oh, yes. say. Oh, yes, yes. I mean, it's not just, I mean, the explicit language and, and the casual, constant casual blasphemy is, is, would, would have been the least of the playwrights and, and the producer's problem. Um, I mean, I actually, the, the, the way it comes, what's so shocking where he says, and I'd actually written this down and my husband looked over my shoulder and he said, what are you doing? Where I'd written down, now fuck off and die, you fucked up slag. He would have said, <laughs> no, no, what, what normal person does that? Well, clearly perhaps not the people he knew. Um, and he talks about the instance, I mean, the other thing that he absolutely would not have understood was the, was the instance of, you know, the cyber sex where they have this, sexual relationship. Yes, th there's a, there's a, a cyber sex yeah. scene where there's a very early instance of the use of the internet in drama where, where Larry is bored and in the hospital and is on an internet sex chat room and oh. Dan is doing the same and they meet and, they, uh, and that's ultimately how um, Larry and, and Anna meet. So we're going to jump forward to 2003 in the Olivier and Jerry Springer, the opera. Richard Thomas and Stuart Lee, directed by Stuart Lee in The Littleton. We are in hell 
where Jesus visits Satan, watched by the studio audience of the Jerry Springer show. Jesus, Dominic, Satan, Jeremy, and the audience is Jane. There were 20 of her in the Littleton. <laughs> so he turned some water into wine. Ooh. So he walked upon the freaking sea. So he got yourself crucified. Here's a little biscuit from me. I am Jesus, son of man, son of Mary, son of God. So do not, do not, do not fuck with me. Oh, scared. I don't want your biscuit. I want your love. I want your respect for I am love. And all I want is love mankind. Jesus is gay. Oh, pathetic. Jesus hey, give is me a gay. break. Give me a break. Well, actually, I'm a little gay. Thank you very much. Um, when, when that production opened, Melody McDonough in the Mail on Sunday said, blasphemy being used to a cheap end. Steve and Catherine, the Lord Chamberlain and Jerry Springer. Yeah, well, I mean, and religion was actually the, the last, uh, and, and the depiction of religious figures was the last thing that they had a complete ban on up until 1966. They were turning down plays written by vicars, uh, which were absolutely straight uh, Christian plays trying to you know, preach to uh, a, a, an audience. They wouldn't allow them, partly because they said, how can an actor play Jesus or even more the Virgin Mary when they might have dubious private lives? You know, you, they, they literally say that. So, you know, religion, even without the swearing, even without the stuff about being gay and all of that, um, they, they couldn't possibly have, have, uh, have allowed. Yes, I mean, the, the original rubric, um, which developed from the 1909 um, uh, Special Committee on the Theatre, was if a play did damage to the sentiment of religious reverence, so that they, they saw that the danger of people um, having a drink while they watched a play that had a religious figure in it. Um, that was what they saw as being bad. There were certain things that sort of leaked through the system, but no, it was, it was as Steve said, the last taboo to go in 65. Interestingly, there is, there is a play, it's either 1969 or 70, just after the, uh, uh, the, the, the Theatres Act, uh, called Council of Love, which the, some of you may know John Bird, the television uh, comedian, he did an adaptation of uh, what was actually a 19th century German play, which has an act set in heaven and an act set in hell, and it has God appears as a, as a wheezing old man, uh, Warren Mitchell was playing the devil, um, Jesus is saying he doesn't want to go back down to earth for a second coming because he had such a bad time on, on the last one. <laughs> it, it's actually still, I think, um, very funny, even to read now. A private prosecution was brought against it uh, by a woman called Lady Birdwood, uh, and it was thrown out of court. And that, that was a sign that, OK, we have moved on. There are still people who object, but, you know, we can go, uh, go ahead. I don't know. I really don't know whether you could stage either that play, Council of Love or Jerry Springer. Now, I don't think I would put it on a course with students. I think I would, they would get so offended. I think we'd, you know, it would be such a struggle. So I, I think religion, I know this isn't really what we're talking about, but maybe the idea of you know, where we are in relation to religion and censorship now may actually be worse than it was, mm. certainly in 1970, and maybe even than it was in 68. So we're gonna finish up 
in 2004 with David Hare's Stuff Happens in the Olivier, directed by Nicholas Heitner. It's Hare's dramatization of the build-up to the 2003 Iraq War. Some of you may recall the TV news pictures of George W. Bush in his leather bomber jacket and Tony Blair in jeans and a blue sweater at Bush's Crawford Ranch in Texas in April 2002 when they went off for a walk secluded together and David Hare imagines what they would have said. And that's the scene we're going to look at with Jeremy as George W. Bush and Dominic as Tony Blair. My point is this. I'm in rough water. I've, there's an accumulation, foreign and domestic. A first term is easy, George. 146 MPs have already signed what we call an early day motion. It's a kind of warning. And 130 of them are in my own party. They're expressing their opposition to British support for US-led war on Iraq. The phrase they're using is deep unease. Deep unease? Hmm. Now, you and I know we're way ahead of ourselves. Way ahead. Any war, any conceivable war is way off. Isn't going to happen tomorrow. Uh, not tomorrow, no, It's no. an option, it's an option. That's what it is, it's an option. But I have to give you my judgment. Please, I welcome your judgment. Hmm. In the event of your considering armed action against Iraq, the British Parliament, I'd say more the British people, won't go along without UN support. From the British point of view, this has to be approached in a, a certain way. On Afghanistan, you had a coalition. There were tensions, definite tensions, but we agreed on the aim, so it has to be here. Say more. I have an attorney general who is advising me that any evasion of Iraq without UN support is going to be in breach of international law. Is that what he says? That's it. That's what he says. In fact, he says more than that. Do I know this guy? No, you don't. <laughs> Tell me what he says. What he says is this. Even with UN support, any invasion is, may still be illegal unless we can demonstrate that the threat to British national security from Iraq is what he calls real and imminent. Real and imminent, George. If Britain is involved, we will need evidence that Iraq can and will launch a nuclear, biological, or chemical attack on a Western country. We can't go to war because of what we fear, only because of what we know. I see. I see. That's putting the bar quite high. Yes, it's high. Thank you very much. So, Bush and Blair are necessarily, I'm afraid, very brief consideration from Catherine and Steve. The Lord Chamberlain hated documentary drama as it developed in, in the 1960s, really suspicious of it. He was suspicious of it and against it if it used actual words that there were records of, and it was even worse if you started imagining what characters might have said and mixing them together in the same play. There's a play they banned completely in, I think it's 1965, amateur play, Colwyn Bay Drama Festival, that speculates on the assassination of President Kennedy in 63. Starts off using actual, real, recorded documentation and then goes on into this uh, sort of imaginary fantasy. They couldn't even allow it for, for Colwyn Bay. And in a way, that's what... David Hare's doing in, in this is, is there's lots of stuff that is documented, but then he goes off into imagination as well. I'll tell you what the Lord Chamberlain would have said. He would have said to the author, you have to get the permission of everybody who appears in your play 
for them to say those words on stage because he did that many times with people. He said, if you can get their permission to allow them to say those lines, then you can put it on, otherwise not. He, they really disliked anything that had to do with recent history at all, not just documentary, as in things that have happened in the last few years. Um, it is perfectly true that they dealt with plays about the growing Nazi threat, 37, 38, 39. There were several, three or four in 1939. And they, they turned them, either turned them down or had them Ruritanianized. In other words, they had to be in an imaginary place and the, there had to be no figures that suggested Hitler or any of the main members in the Nazi party. The best example was from a play that came out in, I think it was June, was sent in for license. And it was sent to the Foreign Office. It was actually quite a good play. Um, and a memo came back from the Foreign Office and it was actually using instances and there were newspaper cuttings um, real instances of treatments of Jews in Germany. And this memo came back from the Foreign Office and it said, find out whether this is true. In other words, that these incidents are in this play. And if these incidents are true, you must tell the playwright to take them out. So in other words, if it was true, they had to go. If he'd made them up, well, we'll think about it. So it just could not be true. And that was because right up to the, the day before war was declared, the Lord Chamberlain was saying, you must not mention Hitler in any shape or form. You must not imitate him or anything. The moment the war started, you could be as rude about Hitler as you liked. Can I just say what the re part of the reason was? Yeah. Maybe you were going to say it, sorry. Pa no, part ahead. of the reason for that was because the Lord Chamberlain, who's in control of this, is part of the royal household, the head royal servant, the argument was that anything that's said on stage, by implication, has the approval of the monarch. So it's not just the playwright saying it. If you put a play on criticising Hitler, it's as though the king is saying that. And that would have been true here as well. So through the 1930s, they send plays to the German embassy to see if they would approve it. They would possibly have consulted the American ambassador uh, about something like this, as they did about other plays in the 60s. It, it's that having that fact that you couldn't just say, well, it's the playwright's play. It's as though the king, queen by the mm. sixes is you know, approving this statement. That, unfortunately, is where we're going to have to leave it, ladies and gentlemen. But the other four plays that would have made up our 10 had we more time. Steve and I chose The Party, Trevor Griffith's play from 1973, begins with a very explicitly staged sex scene between a husband and wife. 1980, most notoriously of all perhaps here, the Romans in Britain with a scene of homosexual rape which caused an enormous stir thanks to Mary Whitehouse. 1988, a question of attribution, Alan Bennett's play about the Queen meeting um, uh, Anthony Blunt, the keeper of her pictures, the depiction of the monarch, an absolute no-no for the Lord Chamberlain. And I think lastly, we went for Mother Clapp's Molly House, Mark Ravenhill's uproarious comedy, which features a homosexual orgy in contemporary London. That would have been our 10. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in thanking our actors and our panelists. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.